turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We'll read the entire chapter, all three verses. A very short psalm. When we were growing up at singing school, we constant joke was to get up and say number three in the hymnal all verses is the doxology you know only has one verse so this kind of reminds me of that it's a very short psalm that we're going to look at this morning just just three verses um, one topic that this psalm talks about which is unity so um, the title of the message is just simply unity uh, I'm not I'm not going to try to make up a, um, something and 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 make it a little more flashy, just very simply, we're going to discuss unity this morning from Psalm 133, and, and also we'll look in Ephesians a little bit towards the end, depending on how much time uh, we have left. But Psalm 133, beginning in verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. And as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So we want to discuss unity, and, and we're going to kind of break down this psalm into three sections, which is pretty easy to figure out that those sections are on the three verses. So we'll take each verse one at a time and kind of pull out some major points from each verse about what this psalm teaches us about unity. But before we do that, what is unity? You know, what, what does it mean to be unified? So unity is the state of being united or oneness. It is the state of being combined with others into a whole. I think that's a, a good definition. So it's taking many parts and turning it into a whole. Concord, harmony, agreement. In math, unity is, anybody know that? It's the number one. Unity in math is the number one. It's a whole. It's one thing. In literature and art, it's harmony. Uh, so it's when different parts of literature and art come together, uh, the different parts of a work to make one work. So that's what unity is. And the Bible speaks a lot about unity. Um, so from the beginning, I'm going to tell you this is something that is very difficult. Um, if you've ever been part of a small group or a large group and you've tried to get consensus on anything, <laughs> no matter what it is, it's really difficult to have unity. If you've ever been part of a board um, of people and tried to make major decisions, uh, it's really difficult to find unity. Uh, now, does unity mean that we can never have disagreements? So in the church, if, if the church doesn't all agree when we vote on what color to paint the walls, if somebody, if one person says, you know, I just don't like that shade of tan and I'm not voting for it, does that mean the church is not in unity? No, it doesn't. You can disagree and still have unity. The difference would be if that person says, I don't like all of those crazy people that voted for that horrible other color, and my color's correct, and therefore I don't like those people, and I might just have to get up and leave this church. 
that's causing disunity. <laughs> but you can vote no and say, well, you know, went with the majority of the church and you can still be in unity. So it doesn't mean necessarily that we all have to agree. But what we strive for is that we do all, that we do all agree. So you, there's levels of unity as well. You can be uh, in a spirit of unity and have people who disagree with something, but what we really hope for is that we all agree. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper later on, but part of that is what is it that you're discussing? There's some things that are more important than others. So as the example I used was a pretty easy one. The color of the wall is not extremely important. If it's a doctrinal matter, we need to have unity. We need to have true unity. We need to all be on the same page. It would be hard for us to fellowship together if we don't believe those things. And then there's, there's levels to that. So true unity is not falling in line. It's not that you never can disagree. It's, it's more of a uh, spiritual union that we have with each other that through those disagreements we come out on the other side still on the same team. So it is possible to vote against something in conference. I'm just throwing that out there in case y'all didn't know that. You can do that, and you're not being ununified. In fact, what builds true unity is the ability to speak and the ability to disagree and, and all those things and then still come out uh, and be on the same team on the other side. So that's the definition of unity. Well, then, what, what does our psalm say about that? So we go to verse 1, and it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So our first point is that unity is good and it is pleasant. Those two things. It's good and it's pleasant. So we're going to kind of break those two things. Why why would you say both? Why why does the psalmist say it's good but it's also pleasant? Well, when we say that it's good, what we're saying is is that we ought to do it. It's good. God says that this is the right thing. Unity is good. God has said that it's good. It is required. It is a duty. So you see, on that side of it, God is saying that you should strive for unity, and it's hard, and it's a duty, and it's something that you have to strive for. It's required. It is good. It's just like uh, a lot of other things that God has said that he says are good. It is good to be honest. It is good to be faithful it is good to be all of the and why are those things good because it's the character of God himself now we believe that God is in three persons right but those three persons are what in perfect unity in perfect unity so it is good then for us to have unity because God dwells in unity so because of that it's good now on the other hand why do you add pleasant because the pleasant adds the want to and the rejoicing in it, and the delight in it. So let's unpack that a little bit. Have you ever been in a situation where there was a lack of unity? So you've been on a board, or you've been in a group, or in your family possibly, where there's a lack of unity? Maybe, in the, especially in like the extended family, like this cousin gets mad at this cousin, and they're not talking, and you have a family get together, and it's just really awkward because everybody knows what's going on, and they know those two people aren't talking. That's, is there any delight in that? Is it a fun thing to do? What about have you ever been in a church where there's disunity, where the church you know, is split over something? It's not enjoyable to go to church on Sunday morning, is it? It's not delightful. It's hard. And hopefully that gets resolved very soon because it will impede worship. It will impede the ability of the church to do its mission, which is to worship God 
and to honor him and for him to get the preeminence. So when we say it's pleasant, it's a delight. It's, it's something we rejoice in. If it was only good, then it would feel like a task or, or there would be pressure to do it. That, and God designed it so that it's not only good, but it's pleasant. Um, unity feels good. It's enjoyable. Uh, and it relieves pressure. It doesn't create it. So there's types of unity, as we said, and I think that's really important when we talk about this good and pleasant. The types of unity, so for one, let's just take the first one, theological unity. We at Providence Church need to have theological unity. We should all believe the same thing. Now, there are there like peripheral issues? Yes. But doctrinally on major topics, we should agree. We should, we should have unity on those things. If we don't, that's a problem, and we need, we need to fix it. However, and I'll use um, my workplace and Providence as, as kind of the, because for me that's such a good example. Hopefully it'll be for you too. But now at TCPS, I don't have theological unity. So on my admin team, I have a Presbyterian and I have a Baptist and I have a non-denominational person and I have some Southern Baptists and then I have me. So it, there's not theological unity there. There is spiritual unity. So that's the second one. Spiritual unity is when we love Jesus, and we have a common spirit. We may not agree theologically, but we're lovers of Jesus, and we're lovers of God. That's spiritual unity. So these levels begin to kind of come out. So I would say I have spiritual unity with those people at TCPS. They're lovers of God, lovers of Jesus, but we don't agree on a lot of things. And so it's hard for me to have the type of unity I should have with them to, to get together in a church state. That would be really difficult. So theological unity is what we should have. What that means is that uh, the ministry of the church should do a good job teaching what it is that we believe. And the church should, should be able to respond to that and say yay and amen to those things about what it is that we believe. Our articles of faith are important in that. So if you're a member of the church, you're saying that these articles of faith are what I believe as well. We have unity in these things. Now, did we include every topic that the Bible covers in our articles of faith? Do you think that was purposeful? Yes, it is, because there are tons of peripheral views that we would say are matters of Christian liberty. And so you can have a little bit different opinion here or there. But the things that we believe are really important, we say these are our articles of faith. So that's a bare minimum. Um, I, I think there's more than that, but that's a bare minimum that we could say we are unified theologically in these things. So I want to go to a couple of places so we can see uh, in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 135 may even be in the same opening for you. Uh, the Psalms are so short, um, 133 and 134. But in Psalm 135 and verse 3, it says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. You see those two words? Now, if you're ever studying the Bible and you want to do this and say, Well, why did he put these two words in the Psalm? I'm going to go look other places where these two words are. There is something you need to know. Sometimes the words are not the same in the English that they are in the Hebrew. But I can tell you the two examples I'm going to use because I checked it, they are. They're the same in the Hebrew and in, they were translated in English the same way. So these are the same two words that are used in our psalm. So what's the context here? Praise. Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name for it is pleasant. So the focus is on God himself. It's in the context of praise uses the word good and pleasant, speaking about God himself. Turn over to Psalm 147, 147 and verse 1. 
Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely. So the same two words used again in the Psalms, and once again in the context of praise, and using these same words about God himself and about praise of God. So what this teaches us, if we go back to our text, when it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, our unity comes from God himself. That's why it's good. I kind of jumped the gun on that a minute ago, got out of order in my notes. But God himself is the reason why that unity is good, because God is good, and, and it's pleasant uh, to worship him and so it's pleasant also to dwell in unity but our unity centers around him so this is why i bring that up it is good and pleasant for who to dwell in unity for brethren to dwell together in unity so what what ties these brethren together why are they brethren is it because they're related in family no it's not the meaning of the text is it because they're good friends and they have the same interest. They like to golf together or they like... No, the reason why they're brethren is because they're both in the family of God. They have that in common. So God is the center of their unity together. It is God that draws them together and unifies them together. That's the good. And the pleasant comes from them worshiping together, uh, worshiping God together because he is good. So true unity comes from God. And it's special for those who know that God is good and they praise him together. So it's good and it's pleasant. Um, like I said earlier, uh, I, I mean, I hope we never get to this place in this church. But if you've ever been around a church that's going through something that's got them disunified and, and there's, you know, split factions in the church and all that kind of stuff, it, it is an absolute hindrance to what the church is supposed to be about. We should be able to come into this place, be unified together to worship God together and to serve him and to go out and minister to others. That's the view. We're a family. And, um, you know, like we said about the definition of unity, uh, it's hard even inside a family. Can you imagine? So, so what is the church? The church is a group of sinners that God has called together into one place who have different personalities, different views, different backgrounds, all of those things. I mean, you look at our church, just, just this very small congregation that we have here. We're small. Look at all the different viewpoints, backgrounds, histories, um, all of those things that God has brought together in this place. In a secular sense, if you brought all that together, people would say, how in the world did those people end up in the same place at the same time? Uh, it wouldn't make any sense. And it's because... The reason we're together is not because of any of those things other than God himself has brought us together into this place and he has unified us around him and his word, that theological unity that we have and that spiritual unity that we have in him. So let's move on to verse 2. So it is good and it is pleasant. Secondly, he says, it is like precious ointment. So we're going to say it's like precious oil. Um, just to kind of shorten that a little bit. It's like precious oil. So first, it is good and pleasant. Second, it is like precious oil. So this is an analogy. And all the kids in here are saying, don't, let's don't have school this morning. Let's don't talk about analogies and metaphors and all that kind of stuff. But what is an analogy? 
An analogy is when you say this is like or as this. So that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, okay, we're talking about unity. It's good and it's, it's pleasant, but it's like this. So he's going to give us an example. It's like precious ointment or oil upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. So we have this analogy that unity is like oil. So what is this oil? Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to go back and and see what he's talking about. Um, Sometimes that's a good thing to do. If you don't know the reference, uh, go back and, and find out. So he's talking about something that's real that we can go back and look in Exodus and see what he's talking about. Exodus 30, 23. says, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even two hundred and fifty shekels, and of sweet calamus, two hundred and fifty shekels, and of cassia, five hundred shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, and hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be an holy anointing oil. Now pause there for a minute. So this is what they mixed up to use as holy anointing oil. And it has the recipe here. It says this is exactly how you make it. You put all these things in an interesting. Uh, you already see some of the some of the. I hope you do, see some of how this is about unity. So you're taking all of these precious things and you're bringing them together into a holy anointing oil. So you're bringing different parts that do different things, bring different scents and different smells and different, and you're bringing them all together into one oil. Now we're going to skip down uh, to verse 31. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall make any other like it. After the composition of it, it is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like it, or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. So, he said, I want you to make this, but this is special. So you make this. You don't use this at home. He said, you can't make any of it yourself. You can't pour it on a stranger. It is holy anointing oil for the use of the priest only uh, for the purpose of anointing. So in the Old Testament, they, they did this a lot. There was a lot of anointing with oil. And so this is how God told them to make this sacred or holy or separate or sanctified oil that they would use then to anoint with so what are some of the the things that we can see from this let's you can you can turn back to our passage in psalm 133 but let's still think about our passage in exodus what are some of the elements of this well number one it was of high price right i mean you you look at all those things there's a lot of money that's going in to mixing this up so it's of high price it's fragrant right um all of these things have you know, strong fragrance to them. That was kind of the point. So they're mixed together, and there's this strong fragrance. It's sacred. So he said this is not something that's just for common use. This is a sacred thing. It's also symbolic. Uh, the oil was used symbolically as divine blessing. So 
Um, it's, it's a symbolic thing as well. And then another thing that we had to go back to our text to see, let's go back and look at verse 2. It is like the precious ointment or sacred ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garment. Now, what that really means there about the skirts of his garment is the collar. It doesn't mean that they were, you know, it went all the way down to the, to the floor. That's not what it meant. But it did mean onto the collar. So there's, they're anointing his head with oil. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've done that before. Um, one of the times I did it was in Ukraine. When Brother Herb and I went to Ukraine, uh, Brother Alex's wife had been very sick. She had been in and out of the hospital. Uh, she had only been home for about a week when we arrived. And so Brother Alex asked us, will you anoint her with oil and pray for her? And we said, absolutely, we will. So Brother Herb got a little oil. He put some on his thumb. I don't know if you've ever seen this done or not, but he just put a little bit across her forehead right here, and we laid hands on her and prayed for her. Now, that's not mystical. There's, not, there's nothing about that oil that's sinking in, and, and you know, that, that's not the point, but we're following what God said to do. So we did that, and we prayed for her. Well, we didn't pour it all over her head and it run down her face and into her collar and all that kind of thing so when you look at this what's another thing we can say about this oil of unity that's being compared to unity it's excessive right there's a lot of it it's poured on the head it runs all down his beard into the collar of his shirt so there's a lot of it it's excessive amount and so the excessive ties back to the good and pleasant not to unity so it's amazing that um, unity brings about an excessive and overabundance of goodness and pleasantness to those who dwell in it isn't that an awesome picture if you if you're a part of a church that's really unified that's really on the same team it brings about an excessiveness of goodness and and a spirit of of pleasantness that people can enjoy so there's an excessive amount as well, I think also uh, it, it teaches us any measure of unity is like um, this excessive oil or, or brings excessive goodness and pleasant. So are we always going to have unity? No, but when we do, boy, it, it just it compounds upon itself how good and how pleasant it is uh, that we can agree together in unity. So it's like precious oil. So now high price. What does that symbolize to me? We said this is analogy. He's comparing the two things. So how does a high price for all these ingredients? Say, well, I hate to tell you this, but unity has a high price. It has a high price, especially for us as sinners. In our default mode as human beings, would you say that human beings in their default mode are more selfish or are more giving? <laughs> And be honest. <laughs> that's the, and, and maybe some people struggle with that more than others. Maybe that's true. But we all know. We all know the answer to that question. A lot of it, you know, we're worried about us. We're selfish. So the high price comes in. To have unity, one of the first things that must happen is we must pay for that with, by sacrificing our selfishness. We have to put that aside. We have to pay for this unity by putting ourselves out of the way. If you're going to be part of a group and you're going to have unity... You're going to have to sometimes put yourself aside and put the, the, the group first. So I'll tell you a little bit about what's been going on with me this week. The masking debate finally hit my school board. And so I've got like one or two board members who are really concerned about masking. I've got a bunch of others that are not. So, so we're in this, this debate back and forth. And I'm, I'm constantly saying, 
Guys, let's remember the whole. Let's remember the, the school. Let's remember the children. Let's remember the faculty. Let's remember everybody. It's a hard thing. Now, I'm not weighing in on that this morning. That's not the point. Um, that's not the place out of the pulpit to weigh in on, on those issues. But something like that can cause a lot of disunity. So the price we have to pay is we have to put our own personal thoughts and feelings aside, and we have to say, what's best for the whole? What is it that, that makes sense for the whole? What is, and sometimes that's not easy to think about. Because right now what you've got is you've got some people, I don't know if you've seen the little thing on Facebook. I really actually like it. It's a preacher who's, who's kind of addressing this topic, and, and he tells his whole congregation to shut up, which I don't know how, how that would go across. But he says, look, some people want to wear a mask. Then wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Don't tell this person that's wearing a mask that you don't love your uh, that you don't have any faith. And don't tell the person who's not wearing a mask that you don't love your neighbor. Just drop all of that and come to the church and be unified. And if you can't do that, repent and come to the altar, repent of that, and then come to church. Uh, I, I thought it was a great. Sometimes there's issues like that that we have to kind of set aside and we have to say, you know what, we're not going to agree on this. We got to set it aside for the greater good. And so that's the high price that we have to pay uh, for unity. But remember the finished product. Now, is it a high price to mix all of these things together? But can you imagine what that fragrance was like? How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. When we're willing to do that and pay that price and set aside our selfishness, then how good and how excessively good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. So the high price is one, one analogy. Another one is that it's fragrant. Have you ever walked in another church and just thought, hmm, what is going on here? Have you ever done that? I have, um, both Primitive Baptist and otherwise. I've been in churches, and I thought, that's the most miserable place I've ever been in. I mean, they kind of come in, do their thing, and they leave, and it doesn't seem like they even enjoy each other's presence, and they, they're not involved in each other's lives. And, I mean, that is not good and pleasant. <laughs> it's not at all. Um, how thankful we ought to be that in this church it's not that way. I think I, I'm going to commend the church. Sometimes we have to, from the pulpit, say a lot of negative things, and, man, we need to work on this, we need to work on this. What a great thing that I think anybody that would walk through these doors would say there's a fragrance in this church that our families, even though we disagree, we love each other. And it's pretty obvious that we love each other. I think that's a wonderful thing. That's the fragrance. So when Aaron was, was this oil was poured over his head and went into his beard, into his, can, can you, you heard the ingredients. Can you imagine the aroma? I mean, that would have lasted for days, uh, that that aroma would have been coming off him. That's the aroma. That's the the way unity looks and smells and feels on a congregation. So we want to have that fragrance of unity when other people visit or when they hear about our church or, and, and I hope this doesn't step on any toes, or when we go out and talk about our church. Are we talking about the, the sweet fragrance of our church? Or are we saying, well, you know, those people at the church, they... That's not giving off the right fragrance, okay? We want, we want people to, to smell the unity of the church through this fragrance uh, that comes from this, this like precious oil uh, that is tied to unity here in our text. So we want to have that fragrance of unity in our church as well. It's sacred. So that kind of ties back in something that we talked about um, in our first point a little bit. Did you know that this type of unity is something the world cannot have? It's sacred. It says, you better not pour this on a stranger, right? That's what it said in Exodus. 
He said, don't pour it on a stranger or you're going to be cut off. This is a sacred unity that is different. Now, I'm on a, I'm on a you know, board at school. I'm on a, this other board that we're starting up right now. And those are good. And you can have some pretty good unity, but it's not the same. It's not the sacred unity that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The reason we can have that kind of a sacred unity is because you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit and it's the Spirit in us that draws us together into a sacred unity that's different than anything the world can have. So the point there is I might be on a group, you know, a board or a group or or some, you know, friends that I have that are outside of the church and we might get along real well but we're not going to have that sacred kind of unity that I can have in this place with people who believe what I believe and see Jesus the way that I see Jesus that's that's different so it's sacred lastly it's it's symbolic so the the unity that we show we need to remember this this is really important so we use the 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 analogy of marriage and Christ in the church all the time, right? So that's an analogy too. Well, unity is also an analogy. Uh, we are reflecting the unity that exists in the Godhead by the way that we're unified here. It's symbolic. So our unity speaks about what we believe about God and how that he is in perfect unity. We ought to strive for that perfect unity. That's the standard. Now, that's a high standard. Like we said, that's difficult. But it is symbolic, and we need to remember that, that we are representing what we believe about the unity in God by the way that we are, are, um, are unified ourselves. So any measure of unity is like excessive oil, and it brings excessive goodness and pleasantness into the church. Now, third, it says, and this one is, is one of the, mo- this, the more difficult part of the passage, I would say. Uh, verse 3 says, As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, y'all know I'm a King James guy. Um, I preach from the King James all the time. I do tech, check a lot of the other texts. This is one of those times where it's not that the King James is incorrect in any way. I, I don't see that. But it's, it's a little harder to understand than going to the original language or to a different um, a different translation so it says as the dew of Hermon and then if you notice it's in italics and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion that part should really not be there in the original language it says as the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing even life forevermore that's really how the text should read so if we go back to the original language There's this dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So we don't want to get confused and see two different events happening. Um, It's the dew of Hermon that descends upon the mountain of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So I don't want to do a geography lesson or anything like that. You're, You're probably thinking, yeah, I don't really need that. Um, because I don't live in Israel. Well, Mount Hermon is still there. You can go there today if you wanted to. It's north of Jerusalem. It's a good ways away. It's several miles. It's, it's a long journey from Jerusalem. It's very north. It's up near Lebanon, where Lebanon would be today. And it's a very tall mountain. It would have been the highest mountain in Israel at the time. It's over 9,000 feet. Mount Zion is closer to about 2,000 feet. So you can see it's, it's much higher, much bigger mountain. 
And Herman was known for, and is to still to this day known for, it has real heavy dew. Uh, just the moisture contents there, the way the, the ecology system works there. If you go there and you were to camp out at night, that, there was actually in one of the commentaries I read, the guy said, I talked to somebody who's actually camped on the, about halfway up on Mount Herman. And they said they went to sleep that night and they woke up and it looked like it had just poured rain all night. Heavy dew that falls every night, just soaked the tent, soaked everything around it. So that's a natural thing there with Herman. That's what he's talking about. So Zion, of course, is in Jerusalem, and it's where God met with his people. So it's very symbolic. This is where God met with his people and where the high priest Aaron, who was mentioned in the previous verse, would have uh, symbolically been the mediator between God and man, and he would have atoned for the sins of the people every year and all of those things. Uh, that law service that went on there. So that's on, on Mount Zion. So dew from far off Hermon falling on Zion is our picture here. So how is that relevant? Why is he saying that unity and us coming together as brothers and, and dwelling in unity is like this dew that falls from Hermon on Mount Zion? Well, a couple of different kind of takes on that that, that I, I believe both have, have relevancy. The, the first one is it's a picture of Jesus coming because Jesus was on high. He was, he, was, um, he was not on the earth. He was on high, and he descended. He descended and came down. And dew, what is dew? Dew is something that brings nourishment to, to plants. It brings life. It, it is a life-giving thing. So Jesus descended, and he came to Zion and, and to the people of Zion, to the church itself, and he gave life. So it provided um, Jesus restored unity between God and man by coming down and, and, and falling upon. He descended to the earth and, and brought life uh, where there was no life. So our unity is a reflection of this and springs from that. Our unity in Christ uh, springs from our common faith in him and the commanded blessing of eternal life that he brought. So, so this is basically that, that viewpoint. If Christ doesn't descend and, and, and doesn't bring life, then there is no unity that we can have because we have broken fellowship with God. So it's really the psalmist telling us, all of these beautiful things that I've told you about unity are completely impossible without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the giving of eternal life through him. That's the basis of all of our unity. If it's not for that, then we don't have any unity because there's no unity between us and God. Uh, that's that's kind of complicated. I understand that. But uh, it, it also can be that um, this this dew falls, and it's, it's kind of like when we as the church dwell in unity it's a covering or a life-giving thing to the church itself it brings life to the church i think that's also a very good interpretation of what the psalmist meant uh when when he wrote this text for us but i tend to go with that the the first um view of that just a little bit because i see so closely this this idea of our unity being tied to our unity with god so if, if Christ doesn't come, and you see at the end of this, he says, for there, talking about Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So how do we have life forevermore? Because our fellowship with God has been restored because of what Jesus Christ accomplished when he descended 
uh, to this earth. So because of that, we have freedom and we have the ability to have unity with our brothers, a spiritual unity with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ uh, because of those walls that were torn down. Now, I will say this too. I think when we talk about the, the wall that was torn down between us and God, that also tore walls down between us. We now have a spiritual union that we would not have had. So then the practical part of that becomes don't put those walls back up. Live in the freedom that Jesus Christ purchased. And when you live in that freedom, unity becomes more possible. Uh, I think that's a, a, a very good message from the, verse 3 in Psalm 133 is that we don't build that uh, resistance back up. We don't build those things back up. Christ has torn those things down, and we live in that freedom, and that freedom then makes unity possible between God's people. So now I want to turn to Ephesians. We kind of looked through our psalm there and, and, and saw what the psalmist taught us about unity. This is going to be really quick. Uh, it won't take long. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'll pull a couple of things from this and then just some practical, very, very practical things that we can talk about, about unity. In Ephesians 4, <coughs> verses 1 through 6, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So just from me reading that, you can probably see that I had read this before I preached on Psalm 133. <laughs> because, like I said, our unity is based a lot on that God himself is in us and, and unifies us. Remember what we said about what is the number in math that represents unity? What is the number of unity? It is one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's not a coincidence. <laughs> this is talking about unity. So we look at the context here in, in chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2 are preparing you for verse 3. He says, He's the prisoner of the Lord, beseech that you walk worthy of this vocation wherewith you're called, so you have a calling. Your calling is with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace so once again what does it take for unity forbearing one another long suffering meekness lowliness those things are setting our pride and our wants and desires aside long suffering forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace so we set those things aside and we look uh, to one another's good uh, we could go to so many places, um, just off the top of my head, Philippians 2 comes to mind, that we're to have um, this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, he was a servant. We're to serve one another. That's how we keep unity, is we keep that servant mindset. So then, we, we read this passage, and it says, we're one body, we're one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of these things that were unified around and all of that because there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all 
and in you all. That's how our unity is accomplished because God lives in us. John Gill said about this passage, there is but one grace of faith, and there are indeed many different sorts of faith, the faith of miracles, historical temporary faith, but there is only one true grace of faith. And though it is in different subjects, yet as to the nature of it, of its like precious faith, it is in all those subjects the same and has the same author, finisher, object, which is Jesus Christ, and springs from the same cause, the free grace of God, and equally in all, everlasting salvation connected with it, consequence upon it, which also brings a faith of unity. So it is that that draws us together in unity. It is that we all have the same faith, the same Lord, all of those things. We, we focus on the things that bring us together rather than those things that draw us apart. Now, very practical considerations, and we'll close. The first one is, and I think the Bible backs this up 100%, a church that tries to bury or ignore its disagreements will never have true unity. So when you hear a sermon on unity, maybe the reaction is, well, I just need to drop it, and I don't ever need to disagree about anything. We kind of already talked about this a little bit. I just need to be agreeable, and I just need to say hallelujah anyhow. You know, I just need to have that kind of a mindset and, and just forget that that is never going to be a recipe for unity. In fact, that's what the devil wants you to do so that then later on that's going to fester and fester and fester and it's going to explode at some point. It does not mean, unity does not mean that we bury or ignore our disagreements, but we bring them to the light in the, con in the context of this unity that we have. And we deal with those things in humility and Ephesians chapter 4, basically, with lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, how then do we deal with that? How do we deal with disagreements among the church? And how do we keep unity in the church? You're going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but I promise you the Bible backs me up, and it's in Matthew chapter 18. The answer to unity is confrontation. Can you believe that? The answer to unity is confrontation. So many people now are afraid of confrontation, so they just kind of hold it in, and they hold it in, and then they, just, they may just leave the church and never say anything. The, the key to unity is confrontation. So what does Matthew 18 say? That may be a strong word, but you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. Matthew 18 says, if you have a problem with somebody in the church, what do you do? You confront them. You go to them. Is that fun? Is it good and pleasant? That part's not. It's the part that comes after that will be good and pleasant. It'll be when unity is restored that will be good and pleasant. But you go to that person individually. You go alone. And if the matter is solved there... The wisdom of Scripture is that then only those two people know about it and nobody else has to know about it. That's why you go to them alone the first time is because hopefully if, if we can all work together with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love, then it gets solved right there. But what did we say a church is? It's a group of sinners. So guess what may happen? You may go to that person and you can't resolve it. It doesn't work. You confront them. There's a confrontation, but it doesn't work. The Bible says that's going to happen because it wouldn't give us step two if it knew that step one always worked, but it gives us step two. Take one or two brothers or sisters with you as witnesses, not as a scare tactic, not as a cheerleading squad. Don't get them and say, now here's the issue, and let me make sure you're on my side, and we're going to go 
That's not how you do it. You just say, hey, I need you to come with me because I've got a, I got a problem. I need you to come be a witness and talk to, talk to this person. So you don't, you don't go get reinforcements, but you take one or two with you as witnesses, and you go to the person again, you try to work it out. And then if that doesn't work, you bring it to the church. And the, the overall wisdom of the church, and seldom should that step ever have to be taken. Hopefully it does not have to be taken, but there's wisdom in it. And then the church decides, and we dwell together in unity on that matter, no matter what it is. Um, and, and that is difficult. So I don't want to end a sermon on unity talking about confrontation, but, but listen, if you want to maintain unity in the church, that's the way you do it. You go to those people, you resolve those issues, and you move forward. And if you don't, there won't be true unity. Uh, and the last, one of the last very practical things I would say that we also see from the Scripture is that the last key to unity is talk to people themselves. Don't ever listen to rumor and gossip. You know what the Bible says about people who do rumor and gossip and backbite and all of those things? It's not very pleasant what it says about those people. So for the key to unity, go to the horse's mouth. That's the same thing as Matthew 18. You go to that person. Uh, if, if you hear something or you hear that somebody said something, go ask them about it directly. Don't, don't believe rumors or hearsay or anything like that. Uh, definitely go to that person. So when those things are done, here's what that brings. Like I said, I don't want to end on that note. What that brings is a restoration of, go back to Psalm 133 brings a restoration of how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So this is the last thing I want to say. We'll close with this. I'm going to go back to verse 1 of Psalm 133. There's a word in there that's really key that I skipped over the first time on purpose. It says it's good and it's pleasant. We talked about that. It is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now that's a that's a high bar. That means we can't avoid one another, right? That means you can't be a halfway church member. That means we dwell together in unity. All of it. We're all here. It's really us. We're not holding our, you know, we're not holding back. We're dwelling together in unity. What an awesome thing it is when people can do that. When people can dwell together, live together is really what that word means, to live together in unity that's an that's, it's a supernatural thing it's a holy spirit thing when we can dwell together in unity like i said this is not a message where i feel like the church has a problem and so i'm addressing it from the pulpit this is more of one of those let's celebrate this together that how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity may the lord bless and keep us in that unity